0: Welcome to the Mindful Creator Podcast. I live by the philosophy that, good or bad, we create everything in our life. If you're listening, my hope is that this podcast plants the seed in your mind that you can be the mindful creator of your world, and that you might be inspired to take action to create your best life by whatever learnings impact you the most. So hey, everyone, welcome back to another episode. My guest today is Richard Balfour Lynn. Richard is the co-founder of the Balfour Winery at the Hush Heath Estate and a serial entrepreneur who has a wealth of knowledge around the business world with extensive experience in so many different markets, including retail, the hotel and leisure industry, real estate, and as I mentioned earlier, the wine industry, where he's also won national and international awards. I was lucky enough to meet Richard for a brief moment just a month ago at the Balfour Winery at the Hashith Estate in Kent, and he was kind enough to set aside some time to speak with me today. So, Richard, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge and part of your journey. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. So I actually, um, it's an interesting way to get started, I actually read somewhere that um, you don't have a CV and you've never actually applied for uh, a, a common job, essentially. How did you? Is that true? And um, how did you get started? And in- uh, It's
1: true. I, <laughs> I've never actually had a job. I think I'm unemployable. The um, I I um, my, all my family are doctors, and I I'm I'm a hypochondriac, and therefore didn't didn't choose to become a doctor. And uh, <laughs> uh, I think growing up around all the diseases I was learning about meant that I probably had most of them. I thought, but uh, I went to business school and. Um, uh, the City of London Business School did four years and um, said to my father, You know, I thought I'd like to start a business. Um, and he said, Fine, but I'm not going to fund you and good luck. <laughs> and uh, which was a good opening. And um, I was fortunate enough to, so I had to earn some money to survive. So I was fortunate enough to uh, become a lecturer at the City of London Business School in the evenings, where I actually learned more. Lecturing than I ever did as a student because I actually needed to know what I was talking about. Whereas as a student, I could know less. <laughs> and uh, uh, um, which was a good education. It was a good education actually in terms of learning to speak publicly, um, which, which actually is quite a helpful facility. And um, I, I then tried to find different business ideas and, and look at what what future trends were happening and. Um, This was back in the late 70s, and uh, there was a growth of private medicine. I understood medicine, and there was growth of private medicine, private hospitals being built, and uh, I realised there were no diagnostic centres, specialist diagnostic centres, and I uh, started an ear, nose, and throat diagnostic centre, the London Otological Centre, just off Harley Street, and I got it funded by all the ear, nose, and throat surgeons of London because they um, were the clerks who sent the patients. They needed the facility, so they funded it. And um, that's how I started. And from there, it was into air conditioning, and M&E, mechanical electrical services, residential property, commercial property, then into hotels and, and so on and so forth. I've been in lots of different things. Uh, I like challenging industries. I, I, my favorite thing is challenging industry perceptions, because industry is trained from within. Uh, and therefore, industry truths continue mm-hmm. and only coming from outside in industry where you have a blank sheet of paper. you So if I was starting again, what would I do? And that's that's how I conducted my
0: life. I, I'm I'm naturally challenging. <laughs> well, I mean, I love that. Uh, I didn't think it was 100 uh, percent true, but it clearly is. And that's incredible to see what you've achieved and the level of success that you've attained and all of it through basically hard graft, just getting in there. It is, it
1: is, look, I, you know, I think that being an entrepreneur, it's a terrible word, but being an entrepreneur means taking risks and it means accepting failure and learning from failure. So I, I have failed many times. I've simply got it wrong, taken the wrong decision, or the economy's moved against me, or whatever. But ultimately, it's, it's how you get back on the horse. It's how you stand up and brush yourself down and say, well, I failed. You can, you know, you've got to be a risk taker if you want to be an entrepreneur. And, and as I said, when people say, oh, you've been successful, I, I always point out, because it's absolutely true, I've failed plenty of times. Maybe I've succeeded once more than I've failed, so I'm just ahead of the game. But, you know, I like like living outside my comfort zone. I I like uh, challenges. I'm hugely as motivated today, 40 years later, as I was motivated then. Um, You know, I just love challenge. I love love new new ideas. I love working with people who are smart. I love love developing people. At the end of the day, what I've actually done most is develop brands. And um, brands are people. And so my ability to grow has always been purely dependent on putting smart people around me and getting smart people and developing them and giving them a chance to take risks and make decisions and get it wrong. It's okay to get it wrong. Um, I often feel in Britain, we're hindered by by people being upset by people who have failed. In America, you know, we've had an ex-president who's failed many times. So, you know,
0: Yes, accept failure, uh, but get back and keep fighting. I absolutely love that. Actually, if you don't mind giving an example of maybe a big failure that you experienced, one that's maybe stuck with you more so than the other ones, that I've had several. I've had several <laughs> of them, but I can.
1: I, I one in particular, which was hugely disappointing, is I was trying. I was trying to create Britain's first real estate investment trust. A real estate investment trust was the American. American thing, you vehicle originally, where you basically had very, very low gearing, very low borrowing, which was contrary to how most people in the UK and America operated with high borrowing, Yeah. but very low borrowing, and you went for very high dividend payments which you distributed out to investors, and it's a, it's a fund, and I was trying to create in partnership with Royal Bank of Scotland and Halifax Bank of Scotland. Both, of okay. course, failed in the financial collapse. They were at my partners at that time in two thousand and seven, and we were trying to create a three billion pound um, ho- hotel re- real estate investment trust, mm-hmm. whereby we were borrowing £1 billion pounds and we were raising two billion of equity across the world. Okay. So there was and and then it was going to be listed on the stock exchange. So it was a very very ambitious project. We had yep. Deutsche Bank, I had Goldman Sachs, and I had uh, uh I think of the third one was um, I can't remember. UBS advising us. Wow. Um, we had we had you know we were paying millions in fees. We we were very excited. I travelled all over the world raising money, and it got to about June. And we put the assets together because my own hotel companies had a huge chunk of them. And so did the two Scottish banks. So between us, we controlled a vast quantity of hotel assets in the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, and we were all putting them into the fund. And um, we got to June 2007. And I was in America. And we'd raised equity-wise about 1.7 billion at that point, And wow. we'd raised the debt. Um, and suddenly... the. the I noticed a change, Uh, the equity houses, the funds, the hedge funds were all suddenly getting very nervous and it was really the start of the financial collapse, I think we were convinced at that point a financial collapse was coming Mm -hmm. because we were really in the front line and we sensed uh, a a change in in the market, a change in reaction, investment profiles and um, we, we pulled it and we we it was, you know, hugely sad and hugely expensive. Um, but we pulled it because we became convinced that the economy was going to change and nosedive. And of course it did, you know, X number of months later when Lehman's collapsed and that was really yeah. the start. Um, but we sensed it then. Um, and and we, if, if we had have gone ahead, which we could have done, with less, slightly less money, a few hundred million less, what happened happened where hotel assets bombed. Yeah. So we would have created this three billion pound fund and suddenly been worth you know, 50% less a few months later, which wouldn't have been equally been smart. But that was certainly was, I would regard as my biggest failure. And you can argue that it's, you can always argue that it's timing or other circumstances. I've learned long ago, it's best to blame yourself you feel better if you accept responsibility.
0: <laughs> but it's, do you know, what, that point in itself is so true. I think we are so used to sometimes, or we find it much easier to pass on responsibility than we do to actually take it and face it ourselves. Because if we take it and face it, it means that we were in the wrong and we have to acknowledge that we have to face it. And for those of us that can do it, we're more likely to be able to be able to as you said earlier get back on the horse faster because we're not blaming an external circumstance or another person for something that we are ultimately i guess always in control of we can't control the external um conditions around us but we can always control ourselves absolutely and you know as i said i i think
1: um i think that you create your own luck um and i think it it, it, it's 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 always been one of my things throughout my life. I'd rather be the one to blame myself than than, than blame circumstance or other people.
0: Um, I find it just unproductive. <laughs> I appreciate that 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 level of openness and honesty. Um, so, just a second ago, you know, you said you regarded that as maybe your biggest failure. So, having gone through all of that work, having gone through all the um, uh, collecting the investment and almost basically ready to go. On that project before pulling the entire thing. How did you then move past that to say, okay, well, I'm still going to carry on and I'm going to do something else? What was your driver in that moment after having done all of that and then watching it all basically slip away?
1: Look, I think that I think that my driver is, is challenge and determination. I think that if you set out, if your goal is to make money, that's not the most brilliant plan. Uh, and and I think I think money is a product if you're successful, mm-hmm. but if you're really going to be entrepreneurial and you're driven by challenge and you're driven by doing the best for yourself, you know, I've always wanted to fulfil my own potential, whatever that means. I've never yet fulfilled it, so I'm continually driven by the desire to fulfil my potential. I don't think I'll ever fulfill it, but that is, that is the driver that gets you back on the horse. That's the driver that gets you up again. And Yes, you feel sorry for yourself for a month or two, but uh, you know, start thinking about things. What, what's really interesting, and I say this to so many people who are starting businesses or want to start a business, is really look at what the trends are over the next five years. You know, What are the trends? Don't look backwards. Don't look at what was successful yesterday. Think about what's going to be successful over the next five years. And that's where you need to be. That's the business you need to be in. Um, The only time that's happened to me by sheer luck is is our wine business. Because when we planted a vineyard in 2002, my wife and I, Leslie, never thought that, um, that anybody would ever drink English wine. I mean, it was a bit of fun. You know, and I've always said, my wife and I have always said that it's the first time I've been in the right place at the right time by sheer luck. You know, no one could have conceived that English wine would suddenly become something that's exciting. But generally, you know, um, an example of looking ahead, for example, in the in something I did in the in the in the 70s and the 60s, everybody went bowling, tempered bowling, and then. Towards the end of the seventies, everybody stopped temping. In the eighties, people stopped temping bowling because they couldn't keep the score; it was too complicated. Um, I discovered that someone in America had invented an um, automatic scoring machine, which I could, of course today is used on every bowling alley. No one sits there with a, with a scratch pad trying to work out who scored <laughs> what. Uh, and. Uh, and, and so I immediately started buying up bowling alleys. We bought up Queensway in London, and we bought up more and more bowling alleys all over the all over the UK, which you could get for nothing because they were in basements with no light and they were all effectively <laughs> closed down. So we bought about 20 of these things, and then we brought in the scoring, and of course everybody started bowling. And today you go bowling, it's a big thing, and everybody has automatic scoring. So it's about the it's about looking at what's going on out there um, and just being aware. I mean, the only reason I went into air conditioning was not because not we needed cooler rooms in, in the UK to get enough of that, but it's to do with clean air. We're all concerned about pollution. Now, way yeah. back in the, in the 90s, people weren't really talking about it, but they were just starting to talk about air pollution, offices, how, how clean they were, people in, in a better environment, more concern for employees, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I started uh, Polar Bear Air Conditioning, it's a silly name, but, um, you know, putting air conditioning into offices and, and it grew and grew. And today, there's very few offices in the UK built without air conditioning built into them. Very so it, it, it's all about looking. And actually, if you ask, if you challenge people to say, well, think about the next five years, what, what what's, the younger generation going to be doing mm-hmm. what are we going to be eating what are we going to be drinking what are we all going to be doing in our leisure time our work environment and and so you soon start putting together a, a, a view on
0: where the future lies wow uh, I love that story I had no idea about the uh, bowling alleys because as a child I grew up going to the Queensway bowling alley and ice rink Ah, there you are. <laughs> well, you probably I, at that probably that time I probably owned it. <laughs> How long did you have that business for before you uh, uh, about sold it ten, off?
1: Ten years. About ten wow.
0: Years. Yeah. So uh, I still remember that, and that's that's incredible. And I guess my question then is because obviously, look, awareness is everything. If you can be aware of uh, where the trends are heading, where to where to look in in your specific market, <clears throat> then you're putting yourself ideally in that best position to then experience, our would air quote, luck, uh, but rather probably more serendipity because, you know, you're there, you're researching it. And by going through those motions, you're going to find the, the right opportunity eventually. What is your biggest, uh, would you say, take on how to be aware and look for the right things? What's, what's your secret? What's, your, what's the thing that you look out for? Because starting out trying to look out for a gap in the market or something like that, it can be quite difficult, especially now with so many things going on all at once.
1: If you look at, if you look, at I mean, look at where we are in the world, we're, we're in a world where social change coming from COVID is significant and, and, and the way we operate will be radically changed by COVID. And I, I would say to you, if you took a clean sheet of paper and said to yourself, over the next month, I'm going to think about what these changes COVID could bring society. You, you start formulating ideas. For example, we're seeing um, people far less interested globally. You know, everything was globalization. The 80s, 2000, global was good. Global brands were great. And and today we're more we're we're, we're less happy with globalization. We're we're more aware of our local community. Um, Post offices in the UK were being closed down in vast numbers. And the thing about post offices, they were the place where people often on their own would go and meet other people and have a chat in the post office. It was the heart of the community, the village post office. So we're seeing post offices suddenly coming back into fashion, people going to post offices, small things we're seeing local shops becoming more relevant you know that's why the big supermarkets are opening up smaller and smaller stores so they can compete in more local yeah. environments we're seeing we're seeing a change in the way we go on holiday you know yes we're going to travel less and staycations exploring britain for example is going to be a bigger thing and it's not just here for covid it's it's here because It's gonna be here because it's a social sea change. Traveling is going to be more complicated. COVID is gonna be with us. You know, we are gonna have to take PCR tests and we are gonna have things that none of us want to do when we're traveling. So thinking about the way society is changing, we're concerned about, more concerned about what we eat, what we put in our bodies. You know, we eat less meat, we, we eat more vegetables, we eat more healthily health we're all more conscious of health we're more conscious of diet we're more conscious of the authenticity of our drinks and our food and where it comes from we're more conscious of the environment green industries clearly is a is a growth sector over the next 10 years um so i would just say that as you start putting these things down on a piece of paper you start seeing trends Uh, None of this is rocket science. I I can't say that I'm some genius. I'm not. You know, read the papers. It's all there to be seen. But society is changing. I I suspect the reason people don't think enough about it or don't don't get the idea is they don't actually think enough about it, whereas that's what I do do. You know, I'm now 68, but I can tell you I still think as much about what the future looks like. As, as I ever did, I'm interested in what's going on. I may not want to go into all those businesses again. I've done it, but but you know, I meet a lot of young people, I give advice to a lot of young entrepreneurs, and I'm interested in in, in where we're going as a society. So from that ideas spring up, um, and I think that I was very amused. I, I gave a, a talk uh, to a school. Um, I was asked to give a talk to a school about being an entrepreneur. And every three months they get someone who comes along It's a big private school, 300 kids. Okay. And they said, we want you to talk to the 10 and 12 year olds. And I said, They're not the slightest bit interested in me, 10 to 12, they said, no, no, you will be. I said, well, who was the previous speaker? And They said, oh, he was an astronaut. And I said, so you're asking some businessman to come along versus an astronaut. So I said, I'm dead in the water before I start. <laughs> He said, no, no, you'll be surprised. Anyway, it, uh, there are about 100 of these kids there of that age group. And um, I began by asking them, I said, so look at the end, of what I'm going to ask you all at the end is, I want you to come up with ideas of what you'd like to invent. I don't care how mad they are, I don't care how bomber they are, just come up with ideas of what you'd like to invent if you had the money to do it. Yeah. And I was staggered by how inventive and smart these kids were. And the problem is, as you get funneled through the education system, you lose that entrepreneurial spirit of free thinking gets beaten out of you. And that's the saddest part, that people start believing what they've been told they are. Um, And you you do start with this free thinking, watch a kid running around and how inventive they are. And as, as people get older, they become more conservative or more nervous or more, or, or less able to free think. And I think what marks an entrepreneur out or someone who's interested in different ideas is they don't lose that excitement, that almost childish excitement of coming up with new things and, and then trying it. And, yeah. you know, sometimes you fall over, as I said, and sometimes you don't, but going out and trying it.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, especially with... Um, so I, I love how answered that question because essentially what what i took from that in terms of your process first of all when it comes to seeing trends is asking yourself the right questions or just rather asking yourself a question you know if i could do anything right now that was going to help society or go with a trend what could i do and then taking that blank piece of paper and just exploring none of it doesn't mean anything that you write down has to happen it just means that you are exploring ideas and as you continue to do so and as you get deeper into it something will click you will find some sort some form of inspiration from it and then i love that that's the exact same approach you took with the kids in the school and i completely agree because there is nothing more pure than a child's imagination exactly absolutely that is, why, like, I think it's one of our key, I would say skills, I would call it a skill. Like our imagination is a skill, which we are then, like you mentioned, taught to ignore through the education system. And yeah, I absolutely love that. That's such a inspiring way to reach other people as well. Look, I still carry around with me,
1: pads of paper, plain sheets of paper, Wherever I go, wherever I go to bed at night, wherever I am in the world, I carry plain sheets of pads. And I just jot down things that occur to me. And, um, and I still do it. I just jot down ideas that occur to me or anything that just occurs to me. Because, you know, I just jot it down. And the great thing is I'm never going to show it to anybody. So it's, I don't, it doesn't matter what I write down. You know, again, a lot of people put everything on computers. Other people see it. People judge it. Or oh, I don't like that idea or whatever. The great thing of coming up with ideas and being entrepreneurial is, is just do it for yourself.
0: Yeah. Don't let anybody
1: see it because you'll get put off. Everybody will tell you it's a lousy idea. Um, and, and, and the great thing of not having censorship, of not having someone looking over your shoulders, whatever you write is yours. It doesn't really matter whether it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Just put it on a piece of paper. Eventually, things will emerge. Ideas will emerge. Or they'll develop. It's just how the human mind works, and I think it's. As I said, I carry
0: sheets of. I carry a pad of white paper around me with lines on the whole time. <laughs> I love that. I mean, as we're talking, I've got a pad with me, so I'm making notes, and I completely believe in that because the more you write things down, the more. The way I see it is, the more you empty that thought from your mind for something new to pop in, and I mean, I liken it to uh, intuition. I don't know if you have the same view or you can call it gut feeling whatever you people have many different names for it but essentially that is it takes its form in uh imagination which again when we were kids was so uh abundant within us and then it just slowly kind of dissipates and we don't realize it because it happens so slowly over a long period of time it's like the whole uh putting a frog in water and then boiling it slowly by the time it's boiling it's too late yeah yeah and no i agree uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I love your approach. And to be honest, it's not even something that I expected to be talking to you about today. So I'm really loving this, uh, this insight from you. Um, so the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was you touched on it a little bit with you know how societies are changing, especially because of COVID and how things have changed. What do you think has changed the most? And it might be the same answer that you already gave in terms of people being more aware of their communities and stuff maybe there's something else, but for anyone listening who maybe does have a business or is thinking about starting one, what would you suggest maybe to them as the pivot points that they need to consider to continue in their business, especially with how the pandemic has literally flipped everything on its head? I think, I
1: think one of the things is, is, is you've got to be aware of your neighbor and society around you. I think that's really important. I think that one of the things that have always, we've always done and I've always done as a business because my wife and I believe in it is that using our business to support the local community in some way, shape or form, whether it's local charities, kids' charities, whether it's giving jobs to people who may have learning or, or other physical difficulties or... Um, supporting the local community through the pandemic, in our case, providing food and drink, not alcohol, I'd add, but (laughs) providing food and drink from our pub estate and from our hotel estate. So I think that, I think recognizing that you're part of society, you're part of the community, and and not only does it benefit the people who work for you because they feel empowered and good that they're also contributing something Mm -hmm. To the community and giving them time to do it, um, I think I think it's, it 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 has a real knock-on effect of how you're perceived in, in 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 society and how you're perceived in business. And it comes back to the point that I made earlier. If your motivation is chasing money, then then I, I don't think that's the right way forward. Money, as I said, is a reward for success, but it shouldn't be the driver. And I think that, that what should be the driver is recognising that you're creating something um, that, that, that has relevance in society and your community. And if you do that, it's remarkable how people then flock to that business. It, you, you get it back. Yeah, It's intangible. And you can't measure it. And you can't put it on your balance sheet. But you do get it back. And I think that that's... Um, I think that the big business is often heavily criticised, um, but but a lot of the great entrepreneurs give away vast quantities of their wealth, or use their corporate power for good, or their influence, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think it, it's lazy when people say oh, big business is just greedy and da de da I think in many cases it is, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs genuinely feel they want to give back to society, they want to contribute in some way and to use their business in a positive way and i think starting out that should also be i don't think it should just be about big business however bigger business you are you know how you move a two-person business you can always help someone yeah and and that 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 has a very positive effect for your team around you it has a positive effect for the community and, and i think it's a very positive way forward it's been something that's always been high on my
0: agenda and i do you know what i personally believe that serving others is I would put it as our ultimate purpose in some way or form and how we do that the different ways that we do that throughout our lives whether it's business working but giving back to someone else is personally where I felt the most fulfilled regardless of uh, the fact that there was no monetary reward after it or anything like that whether it's buying someone a sandwich who's on the road or whether it's helping out in a center, it doesn't matter but as you said, everyone can help. You don't have to have multi-millions to do it. You don't have to be in the highest paying job. You don't have to have anything to do it. Helping someone yeah. is free.
1: Yes, absolutely. And yeah. I think therefore that's a message I would always give to people starting out businesses.
0: You know, remember
1: that because it's a good lesson.
0: <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Um, but going back to what you just said about teams as well. Um, I remember you mentioned earlier that one of the main reasons that you attribute your success to is the people that you have around you who you surround yourself with getting in the smartest people for a specific uh, role within the company or maybe their ideas what have you found as your key ways to build a successful team other than getting the smartest people how do you choose and select those people to work with you and bring them in so that very
1: simple personality the thing that okay. drives me most is someone's personality. You can train anybody, but you can't train personality. And if you think about a brand, a, a, as I said earlier, a brand is, is the people are really representative of a brand. Um, you know, when you see great reviews, it's it's always about people. It's not about it's a beautiful hotel or mm-hmm. the food was fabulous. Yes, you get that, but it's it's predominantly people remember experiences because of people. Yeah, and I think that. Instilling uh, that culture comes from the top, but instilling that culture in your team is really, really important. And therefore, I still spend m- more of my time interviewing people than doing anything else. And I'm not hugely Im- influenced by CVs, because CVs don't tell you about personality, and they're usually written in a professional format, and they churn them out, and they don't tell you a lot. And it's very easy to miss some great people if you simply look at CV. So even if I've got to spend five minutes talking to someone, I'd rather do that and waste that five minutes than miss seeing someone who's got a great personality, who has ambition, energy, desire. Um, and I think, that, 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 I think that's a very important um, part of, of um, building a team. Yeah. I think giving people responsibility promoting from within uh, creating a career path so people can actually see they have a career path ahead of them um, i think
0: all these things are really important to to the success of, of any business really wow i love that answer because i there are so many i mean friends of mine that i know who have applied for jobs and then passed up who could have been perfect for it but they don't get it because of one technicality on a cv or they're missing one line of like some experience on a piece of software or whatever it might be but what you just shared is so true anything can be taught or rather anything can be learned but who the person is that is rare and if you do take the time to interview the right person and just connect with them and find that that is the right person with the right energy brings the right vibrancy to the rest of the team then not only is it going to be a good fit for the business but also that energy will then continue to multiply with the other people that they engage with. And then that filters through eventually to the customers.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: And getting and allowing people to take decisions.
1: As I said earlier, you know, allow people to get things wrong, encourage them to take decisions um, rather than, you know, pass it up the line or wherever it is. And, and you know, and, and, and I've, I've always been a bit of a flat management person. I, I, I hate corporate structures generally. Mm-hmm you know if you want to know what's going on in a hotel ask the receptionist because they'll tell you the general manager will tell you what they think you want to hear yeah (laughs)
0: that is excellent so how do you deal uh, actually I'll, i'll probably put this in two parts how do you deal yourself because you touched on this earlier with uh things like judgment and fear probably um doesn't affect you as much right now but maybe when you were starting out there was an element of it how did you deal with it? And then how do you inspire the team around you to take those risks and also giving them the confidence that if it is the, the wrong thing or it fails or whatever, that they don't need to be worried about the judgment from you, the rest of the team, all that kind of stuff.
1: It, when you were saying judgment and fear, are you referring how do I see myself judged or, or do Correct. I feel fear? Yeah, I don't, I, 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 I have no fear. My father, as I said, he was a GP, had on his desk a motto, which uh, I now have on my desk, which says, it can be done. Wow. And, and that's it, and the can is in big letters. It can be done. And if you listen to most people, they, they give you all the reasons why something isn't going to work. And I just go, well, read this motto. It says, it can be done. Go and do it. Um, I, have, I have absolutely no fear Um. I always ask myself, what's the worst can happen? What's the worst can happen? I get it wrong. I mean, that's the worst that can happen. I'm, again, something my father taught me, it's better to try and jump on the bus and miss it than stand and watch it go by and regret you didn't jump on it. So I think you know, op- opportunities occur to so many people at so many times in their lives. And so often they just let it go past and then regret. So I have no regrets. I, 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 I wish I'd done certain things differently, unquestionably, but, but I, I have no regrets that I went out there and I gave it a go. Um, in terms of being judged, there's, there's gonna be X percent of people who think you're terrible and X percent who think you're great. Neither is totally correct, but but that 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 is part of someone who takes a decision, you know. <laughs> you have to take decisions, you have to be brave. And sometimes you're you're taking decisions that other people don't like. Um, I'm equally a natural interferer. I push people. I mean, you ask, how do I get people to do more? It's because I push them, you know, I challenge them. I push them, I'm on their case. Um, And that's what I try and do. I try, you know, it's the drowning man theory. You know, people find huge strengths if they're drowning. Yeah. And so I'm pushing people to do more because I believe most people can do more. And, you know, one of the things I often say to people is, you know, if you go home at night and you've achieved one thing, that's success. It's not about how busy you are. We can all be very busy. It's what have you achieved? Have you achieved one thing? And when you start getting people's mindset to change, then, then you know, that's helpful. I don't, I hate excuses. I hate people who tell me why something didn't happen. Give me a solution. Don't tell me what went wrong or what the excuse is. Give me a solution. So start thinking through the problem yourself. What would you do? You know, what's the solution to this problem? So the more you get people engaged in thinking and feeling part of something, then the more you get them engaged and enthusiastic and and, and developing ideas and it doesn't suit everybody. You know, I always say to people, look, if you want a job where it's risk-free and it's very simple life, join the civil service. But if you want to work for, for an organization where you can develop and be the best you can be and learn along the way in a whole range of areas, then we're very good people to, to join. And I think that's you know that, that's it. And it's also becomes self- Self-editing, you know, if people aren't pulling their weight in the team, the others don't like it. Uh, yeah. And people move on normally, naturally, they just move on because they—it's too much pressure for them or they, they don't want to be part of that, and that's fine. You know, everybody has choices how they lead their life and the type of job and the type of responsibility. And I'm not saying, I'm certainly not making judgments as whether one way is right or one way is wrong. I'm merely saying, if you're ambitious and you want to develop, then, then then, we're great for it. If you'd rather not,
0: then there are other alternatives. Yeah, I love that. And actually what you just shared just at the end there as well, which was, you know, people, it's not for everyone and that's absolutely fine. It's everyone's got their own ideal of what they would like to do and what level of uh, <laughs> development and involvement they might want to have within a company if they're working. Um, but naturally, those people that don't want to be there will move on. And the ones that replace them the ones that stick will be the same energy as I guess what you filter down from from top down and then you notice that eventually the entire team builds up to that same level of energy throughout and it doesn't matter who you're dealing with but actually everyone's that well especially in uh, your instance at the winery uh, when I experienced it myself with my wife everyone's happy everyone's bubbly you know they they serve you with a smile which is It's still the simplest thing when it comes to service within a restaurant, but it's shocking how many places don't do it still. Um, And I mean, that impression, you actually mentioned this earlier, that people remember how you make them feel. People remember the experience they had because of other people and the experience that myself and my wife had at the winery, we remember because of how we were treated and it was incredible. So it's a testament, not just to you, but also the team, because they are the people that want to work in that way absolutely. Now, it filters through to everyone absolutely love that so let's talk a little bit about uh the journey within some of the uh businesses that you've acquired and started along the route as well um so some of them that stand out uh, more so than others that i'm aware of i mean i had no idea about the bowling alleys i'm still stunned by that um but there was um liberty in london How did that come about as an opportunity? And what what did you do to get yourself there? We we had a serviced
1: office business called MWB Business Exchange. They were the largest service office business in London. Regis were the largest in the world, but we were largest in London. And so our team were always looking for exciting uh, empty office buildings in good locations. And we identified uh, the Liberty Building in Regent Street there was a store on the ground and basement, but all the four or five upper floors were completely empty. Okay. So we approached Liberty and said, will you rent us this space? And the finance director at the time said, um, it was still owned by the Stuart Liberty family. Finance director said, no, no, we're keeping the space in case we ever need it. And I thought, I thought it was the most bizarre idea, this is the most expensive space on Regent Street. thousands of square foot. And they're saying they're keeping it empty because they might need it as opposed to earning hundreds of thousands of pounds, at least in rent. So I thought there's something odd about this company. I didn't know anything about retail particularly. And um, they were publicly listed. I looked them up uh, and saw who their board of directors were and and actually had heard of one of their directors. I didn't know him, but I'd heard of him. Called him up and said, what's going on with this business? It sounds incompetent. Um, <laughs> and he agreed. He said, yes, it's very old-fashioned in its approach. It's really not doing very well financially. And I said, well, maybe I should look at it. Um, and that's how I started looking at Liberty. And we, we investigated it and discovered that, bluntly, that we could buy the business for nothing by by buying all the freehold property they owned at the right price, we got we got the trading business for nothing because it wasn't it was losing money. Wow! Um, and and then having got hold of it, we then myself and the team we thought, right, how do we turn this round? And the first thing to do is find people who know what the hell they're doing in retail. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, um, you did class yourself but, as a disruptor right from the beginning, and this is a perfect example of it. So. Uh, and that, and we ended up buying
1: it off the Stuart Liberty family and, and taking it private from a public company.
0: Um, wow. and, um, you know, and, you know, it's just it's just
1: being opportunistic,
0: really. Yeah, well, I mean, just the fact that you found or searched the board of directors, found someone that you'd heard of and decided to reach out. That in itself is, I guess, sometimes an action that most people wouldn't take because... They might not be sure of what the other person might say, or they might have reservations that the conversation is going to get shut down, or it's not going to go anywhere. But just by taking that initiative, I mean that's look what it's led to. So many more things exactly. from there, right? Yeah. So I mean, it's being as I said, it's having no fear. I mean, what is it to pick up a
1: phone and speak to someone? I mean, what's the worst happens? They put it, put the phone down on you. That's the worst that happens. It's not so terrible. Um, very true. <laughs>
0: So how did you go from uh the, well, you were in the retail space then for a little while, and then you went on to hotels from there?
1: Is that no, correct? Yeah, we, we were already oh, were in, already in hotel.
0: hotels. Okay, fine.
1: We 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 were in hotels. Um our first hotel acquisition was Malmaison when it was just starting. I think we had three or four of them when we bought them, and then then we bought Hotel Devant to merge it with it. Uh, And then eventually we bought Devere and uh, British Hotels and so on. Wow, so even British
0: Hotels as well?
1: Yeah, so we did all that in parallel. Um, No, I was doing a lot in parallel.
0: So actually, that's a good question to uh, bring up then, because a lot of people turn around to, uh, when they're advising like younger people or people who are already in a form of business, they always say, don't do multiple things, just focus on one. Yeah, I agree entirely with that. Okay. So I clearly then... got it wrong.
1: <laughs> I mean, I entirely agree with it. And if I was starting again, I might take that approach. But as I said, I was naturally fascinated by new things. Okay. I uh, had, had great people around me um, and partners and directors and investors. And, and so I, I, you know, did, did jump around too much. And 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 that was wrong. I mean, I it, it suited me. It suited my personality. But if I was telling giving people advice, I'd say focus and take a rifle shot. Be good at re, be really good at one thing. Okay, fair enough. Don't don't follow my example. I'd say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, your example is a pretty good one to follow, regardless. But um, but no, I appreciate the uh, the honesty there as well, which is. become really good at one thing go and make it something that is a powerful skill that you then have within yourself and then once it's sustaining itself and like you just said you know you were surrounded by really good people whether it's combination of investors people you work closely with uh, directors friends people who then can help you make those other decisions as well make you uh maybe run things while you're then exploring other avenues You don't want to be doing one thing by yourself and then start another thing by yourself, because you're going to end up spreading yourself too thin.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect.
0: So here's a question for you, because you said, you know, um, you might not even fulfill your vision or purpose uh, in, in this lifetime, and you've already achieved so much. So do you have an idea of what your ultimate vision really is?
1: No, I think, I, think that, I think with age it changes, with experience it changes the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I think one of the great things about the business my wife and I are creating today is, is, is um, it's a legacy business. I'd like it to be around in the family for the next few hundred years. You know, I always say that I quite like a photo of my wife and myself in black and white with a couple of darts in the boardroom, you know, 200 years time, someone saying some great grandchild of mine saying, you know, these guys started it. (laughs) (laughs) That is an incredible story though. (laughs) I think, I think that, you know, I think, uh, I think, I think that, that's rather a nice feeling actually, that creating something really long term, um, you know, and, and so
0: that's, uh, that, that's, that's what I'm now focused on. Wow, and do you know what? I ultimately I think that as a vision in itself, that qualifies without a doubt. Because leaving that legacy behind, every action you take, everything that you write down on your notepad and paper, um, with sorry, pen and paper, is all focused on. These are my ideas. How can I make a legacy out of it? And, and it's taking a long term view, exactly,
1: um, which is important.
0: And that's where naturally money then doesn't become the immediate end result because long term view won't have that anyway. Exactly. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Love that insight. So, uh, quick question, actually, because I know uh, you and your wife work together uh, on the business. How is it working with your wife on the business? Well, she would say,
1: she would say that I'm a pain up the arse. She, she, She she has made me a softer, nicer person, (laughs) unquestionably. Um, I think she has an insight that's really helpful. Um, I I have the the business skills, if I can put it that way. But she has an insight that's invaluable. She does all our designs, interior designs of our pubs and hotels and at the winery. Um, And she provides a balance. And and again, this is a a family business and therefore it it has an, she brings a a certain feel to it, a certain elegance, a certain style to it that's uh, that's fantastic.
0: I love that. I reckon she probably controls most of it and you're there to do the work for her. (laughs) I I, I work for her. It's unquestionable. That's that's the right answer. (laughs) Um, Okay, so who has been your biggest role model to date? Who's been the biggest influence on you for your life and the direction that you've chosen to take? I think my father.
1: I don't think it's been a business person. I think my father was um brilliant GP. He was very entrepreneurial. Uh, he was very free thinking. He, he, he was a great lateral thinker. Uh, he was a person that my friends, when they were growing up, used to go to for advice because he was very wise. Um, and I think that he, he, he was a huge influence. He also died very unexpectedly at 63. Oh, sorry, sorry. And, Which is a ridiculous young age because he was fit, healthy, dynamic, and he, and he had heart failure and dropped dead. And, 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 and that affected me hugely because it happened when I was in, in my sort of late 20s, early 30s. And I, I learned from, one of the things I learned from that is to value each day, mm-hmm. not waste a day, not waste time. And be slightly selfish, you know, in terms of not necessarily doing. One is one does a lot of things one feels obliged to do, but just try and balance that. Yeah, Uh, he always taught me to have a proper work-life balance. He always taught me to have lots of hobbies and interests outside work. Um, But it also meant that I was always in a hurry, because you don't know, you know. As example, someone dropped to sixty-three. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know what what the end date is it would be very helpful if you did but you don't <laughs> and um humbling so, so i'm therefore always in a hurry i i want to get things done today not tomorrow yeah uh, that's part of my drive i'm sure and uh, you know he, as i said he was a gp um started with nothing and um as an nhs gp and um
0: you know i, I think that he's been my role model of great influence amazing it sounds like a great man definitely it was um and actually uh, one thing you touched on there which i think is quite important to uh, just to expand on a little bit is the the balance you know something that he instilled with you which was make sure you have a good work-life balance now at the same time you know you've just mentioned that you're always in a hurry to get things done you'd like to get them done today why leave it till tomorrow how do you then achieve that balance or rather what does that balance actually look like for you Look, I, I've, I've throughout my life I've exercised most
1: days. Sport has always been a big driver for me. Exercise, sport is a way of relaxing. I'm competitive, so I enjoy sports. Um, you know, I use lockdown to have to, my, both my knees replaced due to playing tennis wow. and football. They both needed replacing. Wow. Um, you know, so sport, health. Um, uh, I travel a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm quite good at compartmentalizing mm-hmm. so I can deal with my worries or whatever I have to do and then I can switch it off yeah. um, I'm not a person who bears grudges you know I don't I don't curse and scream for three days you know I'll, I'll have half an hour and then move on yeah mm-hmm. so compartmentalizing is really important and 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 having lots of interests. I have lots and lots of interests. I have some great friends. I travel, I socialize, I play sports. I do lots of different things. And I think that that, that, that gives you that work life balance. You know, and my wife and I always on a Friday night at, at, in, in the summer, at sort of usually 6 sort of six thirty, in winter, maybe at seven. We stop and we sit down with a glass of wine and, and have like a private cocktail party, with just the two of us. And we have to wow. stop at that time. You cannot run over it. It doesn't matter what's going on, when the world's falling apart, you have to stop. And, and it's, a, it's like switch off time. And I think that's very important, having cleared delineation mm-hmm. between your work and your non-work. It's just easy. The thing about computerization is people never stop. Yeah, they don't turn their phone. They don't turn their phones off, or they don't shut down their computer and go. Well, I'm not going to look at it for. You know, most people can't not look at it for five minutes. Look at everybody; they're permanently on the phone, staring at it. their screen. I didn't grow up in an era of screens, an era of screens, I should say. So, I, I'm I'm not in love with screens. So, you know, we didn't used to be permanently on call. We've become yeah. a society that's permanently on call. We've become a society where uh, social interaction is done on the internet through all these different mediums and everybody's texting and Instagramming and tweeting, you know, and expecting instant replies. You send an email and if you haven't had a reply in two minutes, you're offended. <laughs> no, no one used to do you know, you, you, you don't need to leave your life that way. Of course, we do lead our lives that way. And it's silly to say we don't, but we do it within certain hours and go, okay, well, we're stopping now. That's it. The phone's off. The computer's off. We're stopping. Um, you know, if someone needs me that badly, they'll find the landline or the pigeon or whatever. But you know, <laughs> it, it, it is it is that ability to stop. And I think it's very easy for people just to get swept up in this constant twenty-four hour cycle of of, of 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 screen activity.
0: Yeah, I, I I love the answer because it's actually something that's uh come to my awareness and my realization not too long ago actually just a couple of months ago just how much i was focusing on everything's work related and then opting for that time for example with my wife or with friends where that happens as and when it can and work was everything and just recognizing the impact that has on so many different on the relationship in so many different ways is is powerful absolutely absolutely um, it, it can have a, a huge knock-on effect. And just having that awareness around that now and finding that time. So when it's that time to just have a cocktail party together or enjoy a glass of wine, or maybe you're going out for a walk, whatever it might be, it's that time and nothing else happens. That's it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I think that, yeah, so that's how I deal with it.
0: Awesome, okay. Uh, last two little questions, actually. Um, What's your most inspiring book? Do you have a most inspiring book that you've read that also had an impact on you? Um,
1: a, a, an inspiring book I read many, many, many years ago was the book on the life of Golda Meir, which was the Israeli female prime minister. Wow, okay. And she was a very inspiring person. And I, I rem- that probably out of all the things I've read and I read it when I, you know, reading an inspiring book often is the age you read it at and where you are in your own personal development. I was in my early thirties, and it just reset some of my mind set in terms of what was important. And and you know, it was it, it was far more about it. It wasn't about business or mindfulness. It was about uh, someone who'd led a life of of unbelievable achievement, but but about being involved with society throughout and change and big change. Um, so
0: that was, um, that, that was quite inspiring. Amazing. I love that. I've, I've never read it myself, but I'm definitely going to check that out now. Worth her life story, Golda Meir. Definitely. We'll check that out. It's next on my list to order. And last question, if you could travel back in time and give your younger self just one piece of advice, what would you say to him? Don't do so many different things.
1: That unquestionably is what I would say to myself. Um, I, I think that I just got involved in too many things uh, at that stage of my life, not mm-hmm. today, but at least I've learned that. I mean, the important thing is I've learned that lesson, so now I'm focused. And when lots of different things come, come to me, which they do, different ideas and business ventures and opportunities i've learned to say no so i think that you know i'm fortunate that that, that i've been able to benefit from the lesson that i would have taught my younger self <laughs>
0: but a powerful lesson nonetheless and again you i guess you just don't know what uh, how things could have transpired differently but it's an interesting uh, perspective to look back on uh definitely and the fact is is that that's exactly what you're practicing right now as you said yeah so but ultimately but ultimately as i said right at the beginning of this
1: interview this podcast i wouldn't change anything you know i had a great time you know i went for it i did it hindsight's marvelous we're all very smart after the event you know but at the time i did what i wanted to do uh and thought was right for me and went for it
0: and you know, I jumped on the bus. Yep. That was it really. I love it. And on that note, Richard, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And uh, I'm sure, I mean, I'm feeling extremely inspired and I've learned so much just from your story. And I hope that everyone listening has received immense, immense value, uh, just through the time that you've set aside for them. So thank you again so much. And for those of you listening who uh, do live in uh, or around the UK or, are wanting to visit a UK-based uh, vineyard, I would 100% recommend the Balfour Winery at the Hush Heath Estate. It was incredible. Myself and my wife went just a month ago. And as I already mentioned within the podcast, the people are amazing, They everyone's smiling, the grounds are beautiful. You've got people like Richard who are there walking by uh, because that's actually where you live as well, which is an incredible setting to be in. Um, and most importantly, The wines are incredible. And for the first time, actually, in my life, I had a sparkling red. And as someone who doesn't really enjoy sparkling wine, I absolutely love that. So uh, congratulations on that wine, definitely. And thank you again for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mindful Creator podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and you got some value from it, I'd really, really appreciate a review. And don't forget to share this podcast with friends, family, colleagues, anyone that you think could benefit. Thanks again. Have an amazing day and stay visionary.